Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. It includes discussions of murder and violence that may be upsetting for some listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. January 1973. Weeks after filming his character's death in the Hollywood blockbuster The Exorcist, actor Jack McGowan died from a heart attack. Ten days later, actress Vasiliki Maliaros, who also starred in the film, died unexpectedly. Shortly after, the actor who played Vasiliki's son, Jason Miller, received news that his child had been struck by a motorcycle. More deaths came in rapid succession. The lead actor's grandfather, another actor's brother, a cameraman's baby, a studio night watchman. The string of tragedies caused rumors that the production might be cursed. And many still on the set for The Exorcist feared they might be next. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today we'll be covering the classic horror movie The Exorcist. Due to a series of on-set accidents and a number of untimely deaths related to its production, many believe the film was cursed. In this episode, we'll explore the making of The Exorcist and three conspiracy theories that haunt its reputation. We'll investigate the possible origin of the curse, dating back to an inexplicable fire on set. We'll discuss rumors that an evil force embedded itself in the film's celluloid. And we'll explore the possibility that director Billy Friedkin spread rumors of a curse to spark intrigue and encourage the film's success. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? Poltergeist activity? Do you believe in ghosts? Malevolent entities? Are aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know. But what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story? Do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. On December 26, 1973, The Exorcist opened in theaters. Explicit language and gruesome imagery shocked viewers. It was unlike anything that had graced the horror genre before. But the movie wasn't just the product of a screenwriter's imagination. The plot was based on a real-life exorcism. As a ceremonial event, exorcisms are performed to rid a human body of illness, bad luck, or malevolent forces. Although they're practiced by many religions, the ritual is often associated with the Roman Catholic Church. In Catholicism, there are two categories of exorcisms minor or major. You're likely more familiar with the major exorcisms. They involve the expulsion of demons, and they've fascinated skeptics and believers alike for centuries. Including a young, up-and-coming author named William Peter Blatty. In 1949, 21-year-old Blatty was completing his senior year at Georgetown University when he read a story in the Washington Post. In Maryland, a boy who we will call Robbie Mannheim was exhibiting severe, unexplainable behavioral changes after the death of his aunt Harriet left him shattered. In life, she was deeply fascinated by the occult. Though most of her family dismissed her offbeat interests, Robbie didn't. The two were close friends. After Harriet died... Robbie's childhood home reportedly became a hotbed for strange disturbances. His parents would tuck Robbie in for bed, and his mattress would start to rumble. Robbie screamed in terror as the bed violently shook each night. Soon, he became physically ill. He started hearing high-pitched screeching in the house and scratching in the walls. With each new bump and rattle, it felt more and more like his aunt was trying to reach him. Eventually, a local Lutheran minister invited the boy to sleep under his observation. According to the minister, he witnessed the boy's mattress shaking entirely of its own accord firsthand. But it wasn't just the bed. 
The minister also claimed that Robbie was flung from a large armchair after the chair began to shake rapidly. Eventually, the Lutheran minister told Robbie's parents to take him to see a Catholic priest. The Mannheims took Robbie to the Jesuit-run Georgetown Hospital. There, Robbie's condition worsened. The more withdrawn he became, the more violent his outbursts. He seemed to exude a malicious energy. At one point in the hospital, Robbie attacked a priest with a sharp coil of a broken bedspring, slashing open the man's arm. As Robbie lay in bed at night, mysterious red letters appeared on his chest. Some inner force seemed to be clawing its way out, scratching symbols onto the boy's skin from inside his body. The Mannheims were at a loss for words. They didn't know how to move forward until a relative put Robbie's parents in touch with two Jesuit priests, Father Bowdern and Father Bishop. The priests studied the child and determined he was possessed by a demon. Given the scars, the violence, and the disturbances, they decided an exorcism was necessary. Fathers Bishop and Bowdern led the ritual. They chanted as the boy tried to ward them off. He spat and clawed at them, passed gas, mimed masturbating, and urinated freely. He lashed out like a tethered monster. But the exorcism seemed to work. Over the course of several days during the priest's final visit, Robbie calmed down. His usual demeanor returned, as did his health. Robbie eventually married, raised children, and worked for the U.S. government. But he never spoke about his case. It was too traumatic. But when William Blatty read the story in the Washington Post, he became obsessed. He wanted everyone to hear Robbie's tale. When Blatty later questioned Robbie's exorcist, the priest assured him that the case was real. With that, Blatty began writing. In 1971, the book The Exorcist was published to widespread acclaim. It topped the bestseller lists for 54 weeks straight. Before long, Blatty enlisted director William Friedkin to direct a movie adaptation. Friedkin agreed to keep elements of Robbie Mannheim's story, like the two priests and certain medical and psychological tests, but he wanted the focus to be on the horror of the exorcism not on its humanity. As a result, Friedkin insisted Reagan speak in a deep, demonic voice and the actress wear makeup to make her appear more monstrous. He wanted all the film's special effects to be as terrifying as possible. With these changes, production on the film careened forward, and on December 26, 1973, The Exorcist was released in theaters. Despite being banned in certain cinemas for being too scary, the film became a smash success. But as The Exorcist pulled in record ticket sales, startling stories started to pop up around the world. Moviegoers ran out of theaters in fear. Others fell mysteriously ill after watching the film, and one unexpectedly died. Coming up, the bloody making of The Exorcist. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. 
and we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight, all are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. The Exorcist hit theaters in December 1973, and almost immediately, strange events started to plague screenings of the film. Ambulances rushed to theaters to tend to moviegoers who passed out, entered a panic attack, or vomited during the movie. It happened so regularly that cinemas showing the film started stationing medics at their exits. In 1974, these kinds of precautions were unheard of. The idea that a film could cause physical side effects perplexed medical experts. Psychiatrist James C. Bozzuto even gave the phenomenon a name. He called it cinematic neurosis. Bozzuto documented the wide array of side effects that exorcist viewers experienced, many of them extreme. Patients were plagued by nightmares, weight loss, sleeplessness, and battle hysteria. And rumors spread about a teenager who suffered much worse. In the UK, a 16-year-old boy named John Power died the day after seeing the film. The press exploited news of the tragedy, and the public feared the film might have been responsible. However, it was later revealed he died of natural causes. The willingness of people to place blame on the film, though, highlights the hysteria created. Stories of audience members' reactions spread, reigniting old rumors that first started circulating during production. Viewers feared the exorcist was cursed. While the curse is our overarching theory today, we'll break it down into three distinct sub-theories. Conspiracy theory number one. An otherworldly curse caused the entire set of the exorcist to burn to the ground with one exception, the bedroom where they filmed the now famous exorcism scene. Let's go back to the film's production. It was a quiet Sunday morning at Seco Studios in Midtown Manhattan, late in the summer of 1972. The graveyard shift was nearly through when a studio guard noticed an off-putting scent. Smoke billowed from under the stage door. When the patrolman opened it, he saw a fire devouring the set. In a flash, the fire department arrived. Meanwhile, director Billy Friedkin was still fast asleep. His production manager woke him up with a phone call, saying Friedkin shouldn't bother coming to work. The set was completely destroyed. And he wasn't exaggerating. 
Overnight, the film's producers lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Ash covered every inch of the studio, props were destroyed, equipment was ruined, and months of work had been lost in an instant. Except one significant part of the set remained intact. Reagan's bedroom, where the scene of the exorcism was filmed. While it was in another part of the studio building, the room was untouched by the fire. This left many crew members astounded. Some even speculated there were supernatural forces at play. With no place to go and no way to film, production halted. The crew had little time to dwell on the strangeness. They had to get to work. It took six weeks of rebuilding around the clock to reconstruct the sets from scratch. At some point, a rumor sprouted. The crew began to wonder, what if the film they were making was cursed? Even the producers became superstitious. They couldn't afford another mishap or delay. Regardless of their beliefs prior to the start of filming, once the new set was complete, they invited a priest in to officially bless it. But soon after the cast and crew returned to work, disaster struck again. The sprinkler system went off for reasons unknown. The set suffered severe water damage and production experienced more delays. Based on the fire and the flooding alone, it does seem possible that the set was cursed. Even a priest's blessing didn't stop the production's misfortune. Some crew members got badly injured, losing fingers and toes. Others became seriously ill. All of this heightened anxiety around the set and added to the belief that the film could have been dealing with some dangerous paranormal activity. Sure, but in the end, the insurance appraiser claimed the likeliest scenario was that a bird flew into an electrical panel in the studio. It caused a short circuit that sparked the fire. Yes, but that evidence was inconclusive. They never found the bird, dead or alive. The only real evidence investigators had was statements from crew members that pigeons lived in the studio building. While it's exciting to think that some paranormal force set the scenery ablaze, for me, the insurance report makes more sense. Even if the pigeon evidence is hearsay, the fire was likely an accident. Any other part of the set could have been saved had it been elsewhere in the studio building. And we know the crew was already superstitious by that point. With all the rumors swirling around, I think people might have been looking to latch onto supernatural explanations. For that reason, I give this cursed production theory a 1 out of 10. Even if there were pigeons living in the studio rafters, it seems completely out of the blue for one to crash into an electrical box at 4 a.m. This movie is entirely based on nightmarish scenarios that become real. Enough bad luck happened that it could have been the result of some inexplicable force that didn't want production to finish. I give the theory a 3 out of 10. Regardless of why the set burned down, at least nobody was harmed or killed in the fire. But the strange deaths connected to the film, one after the other, seemed to be anything but coincidental. The Exorcist's dark themes didn't just rattle viewers. Its content was so controversial that it became the center of a widespread cultural debate. 
Many took great issue with the exorcist, religious leaders perhaps most of all. According to the film's director, Billy Friedkin, while some Catholic leaders were supportive of the film, Boston's Cardinal wanted the film banned. Evangelist Billy Graham denounced it from his pulpit, saying, quote, the devil is in every frame. This brings us to conspiracy theory number two. An evil force embedded itself into the film's celluloid as they shot. Some said this evil was responsible for the deaths of innocent people connected with the production. Nine people who were attached to The Exorcist died before it was ever released. And coincidentally, the first person to die during production was also the first to die in the film. In the film, Jack McGowan's character stops by Reagan's house to check in on her. Once alone with a possessed girl, she gruesomely murders him. His character's mangled corpse is later discovered on the pavement below her shattered window. In real life, McGowan passed away shortly after wrapping work on the film. He died from a heart attack after contracting the flu. Perhaps the crew wouldn't have taken McGowan's death as a sign that the film was cursed had he been the only one to die. But after McGowan's death, a supporting actress died right before the film was released. And the actors weren't the only ones losing their lives. Some of their closest relatives died suddenly too. Actor Max von Sydow, who played the older priest, received word of his brother's unexpected death on the very day he started work on the film. And Jason Miller, who played the young priest, received an emergency call during filming. He learned his son had been hit by a rogue motorcycle while playing on a quiet beach. Even the film's teenage star Linda Blair as Reagan was touched by the film's alleged curse. Her grandfather passed away during the shoot. With each and every death, there was a growing apprehension among the cast and crew. They had all come from different backgrounds. There had to be something more sinister uniting their string of tragedies. The rumor that maybe a curse was embedding itself into the very film they used to record their scenes grew. In one interview, Linda's on-screen mother and co-star, Ellen Burstyn, listed off some of the deaths that occurred. She said, quote, Linda's grandfather died. The assistant cameraman's wife had a baby that died. The man who refrigerated the set died. The janitor who took care of the building was shot and killed. It was scary. Burstyn wasn't the only cast member rattled. People throughout Hollywood started to think the project could be cursed as well. Some began to theorize that the equipment used for filming was tainted too. And maybe even created a serial killer. Coming up, Bill Friedkin's take on the curse. Now back to the story. As the cast and crew of The Exorcist struggled to cope with the untimely deaths during production, they looked for other explanations. One was that the film they shot on was becoming physically possessed. Many assumed they had to be connected to some evil spirit taking hold of the project. Director Billy Friedkin was apparently undeterred by the extreme rate of death around him, 
even when an actual killer was captured on camera. Friedkin hired an actor named Paul Bateson to play a radiology technician in the film, and on set, Bateson seemed fine. But just a few years after the film was released, he was charged with the murder of a reporter at Variety magazine. Eventually, Friedkin paid a visit to Bateson before his trial. During their talk, the actor admitted to Friedkin that he had, in fact, killed someone. In a macabre turn of events, their conversation inspired Friedkin to direct a new movie about the possibility that Bateson was actually a serial killer. Bateson was never convicted of serial crimes, but he did serve 24 years for murdering the reporter. He completed his parole in 2003. Following his release, Bateson disappeared from the public record. His current residence is unknown, and it's not clear whether he's dead or alive. It's certainly another bizarre twist related to the film. That said, in the cases of death and destruction during the film's production and release, I'm not sure there's any real evidence to suggest they were linked to the film The Exorcist shot on. If the celluloid was cursed, why didn't it affect the whole cast? Why would it have affected some directly and others indirectly? As for Paul Bateson, it's an eerie coincidence that Friedkin hired a man who was later convicted of murder. But I don't think that means an evil presence was captured in the film's fibers. For that reason, I give the cursed celluloid theory a 2 out of 10. I'm still a little skeptical. For nine people to die and for there to be a murderer on set is a lot of coincidence for one film. Supernatural phenomena can't always be explained. That said, evidence for a curse being embedded in the film itself is pretty low. I have to give it a 3 out of 10. Regardless of whether the curse was real or not, it made for exciting headlines. Rumors of the curse spread quickly, as did stories of audience members having terrifying reactions to the film. This hype drove up ticket sales and left some wondering if the curse was actually a gimmick created by the filmmakers. It would be pretty grim to leverage real-life tragedies for a marketing ploy, but never say never in Hollywood. This leads us into conspiracy theory number three. Some say director Billy Friedkin spread rumors of the onset curse to lure moviegoers into theaters. Friedkin allegedly had a history of dramatic behavior. On set, he used whatever tactics he felt were necessary to elicit authentic performances from his cast, some cruel and unusual. Friedkin was said to fire guns to startle his actors or slap them before calling action. Even crew members weren't sure where reality stopped and the performance began. Friedkin had his set designers build a machine to violently shake Linda Blair so her movements looked involuntary during the exorcism scene. Blair sustained permanent spinal cord injuries after being jerked up and down so fast. At one point, a metal piece of machinery came loose and hit her repeatedly. She screamed her line in the script, make it stop, but nobody realized she really meant it. 
Friedkin's unconventional antics could point to his willingness to do anything to ensure the success of his films. It doesn't seem far-fetched that he'd lie about an on-set curse. But he did have a lot of bizarre examples to draw on. One carpenter cut off his thumb. A light technician even had a toe amputated because of onset injuries. Many believe Friedkin saw these mishaps as an opportunity. He knew if everyone talked about the deaths and accidents, the public would grow even more curious about the film. He wanted to create a stir so powerful that even people who wouldn't normally watch horror films would buy a ticket. And they did. The film made over $230 million in the United States alone. It remained the most profitable R-rated film for years afterward. These stories, combined with Friedkin's get-the-best-performance-at-any-cost attitude, certainly creates an interesting case for the theory. Perhaps Friedkin did instigate a campaign of disinformation to get Americans into theaters. We do know Friedkin wasn't always honest. At one point, he claimed he filmed the levitation sequence by using a magnetic field. In reality, it was just piano wire lifting the actress. However, Friedkin repeated this lie several times. If he told the audience there were no wires, maybe they'd be more likely to ignore the actual evidence in front of their eyes. In psychology, there's a word for exposing someone to a particular idea in order to influence how they respond to a related stimulus. It's called priming. Friedkin primed his audiences in hopes they'd become blind to the mechanics behind his special effects. Every time someone asked him about the possibility of a hex on the film, he was coy. He replied that there could be some truth to demons, possession, and the curse. He said, quote, I did this film because I believe in the story. This film was made by a believer. And Friedkin's belief fueled a similar emotion in audiences. Throngs of film lovers believed in the curse. After the film's release, fans would greet Jason Miller, who played Father Karras, on the street and ask him to cast out their demons. More and more people started to believe they were possessed, and an actor had the power to free them. All the while, Billy Friedkin kept these supernatural conversations alive. He especially encouraged those who considered themselves atheists to think about the possibility of possession. In one interview, the director mentioned everything in The Exorcist is about the mysteries of fate and faith. He even said the film asks for a total leap of faith from its audience. Thanks to Friedkin's hype, the film tapped into a universal debate around faith and fact. It left viewers questioning the line between horror, fantasy, and reality. But Friedkin's attempts to suspend disbelief were certainly informed by his own self-interest. He wanted a hit film, so it's not hard to wonder just how much he used people's faith and fear for profit. In light of his philosophy and the tricks he used to fool his actors and audiences, I believe he prioritized success over the truth. I give this last conspiracy an 8 out of 10. 
It seems highly likely that Friedkin perpetuated the myth of the film being cursed to boost ticket sales. That's true. Friedkin all but admitted he helped spread the curse rumors. According to author William Blatty, quote, Friedkin had fallen vastly behind schedule, and he gave an interview to Newsweek magazine blaming it all on devils. The next thing, reports about all these troubling occurrences started circulating. Over and over, the director had no trouble twisting or exaggerating the truth. It seems he used priming, or the power of suggestion, to get folks in the theaters. I'd also give this theory an 8 out of 10. In the end, there are different ways to interpret The Exorcist. Writer William Blatty intended to showcase real-life possession, and by extension, the power of faith and God. The director, on the other hand, twisted and transformed the original story of the young boy into a cinematic nightmare. And by Friedkin fueling rumors of a real-life curse, moviegoers were left especially vulnerable. They could no longer assure themselves that a film couldn't hurt them. Because they were plagued by the idea that maybe it could. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by John Levinson, with writing assistance by Andrew Messer and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, Each week, we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.